На трибунах олеют знамена, Облака поднебесь и плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. It's been a busy week in Russia, with an ad hoc referendum bookending two rounds of glorious RPL football in a buy-one-get-one-free deal. To discuss the latest matters in the world of Russian football, I'm your host, James Nichols, and I'll be joined by David Sanson. Hello, David. Hi, James. Good to be back again. Yep, delighted. And Andrew Flint. Hello, Andrew. Hello, boys. Good to be back again. There's been a plethora of managerial changes and rumours this week. First of all, after Krylia Sovietov lost 2-1 to Zenit at the weekend, Mia Drag Bozovic was sacked and almost immediately replaced by Kim- former Kimki boss Andrei Talalayev. Perhaps that sounds harsh, but Krylia largely threw that result away and previously been winless in five games. David, what are your thoughts on the sacking of Bozovic? Well, you know, they're a team in the bottom two and uh, they're, they're, they've been struggling, especially post post the loss of, of uh, Alexander Sobolev. I mean, first of the season, they relied heavily on him. You know, without his goals, they'd have really been really, really, really struggling. Um, but a team in the bottom two, I felt it was a little bit harsh based on the performances um, since the resumption. Um, you know, well, okay, that's a lie. The first game back, they were dreadful. You know, lost losing four one. I hope that was was not good. Uh, but then they've gone off, gone off to St Petersburg, and you expect them. We we said it on here. We expect them to get absolutely battered. But they played out of their skin. Uh, you know, played some really great stuff. Scored a nice goal. Scored a second nice goal. But then that didn't quite that didn't count. Um, we'll address that later, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and no, I, I felt they sort of got a little bit hard done by there. Um, but just as some, you know, a silly mistake again, um, giving away a penalty and. You know that's that's what football comes down to. Sometimes individual mistakes can cost you points, games, and jobs. In the case of uh, Tal Alive, oh, not Tal Alive. Yeah, that... Bozovic. And, and Bozovic. Yeah, that was my thoughts as well. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, the Akmat game was a little bit of a disaster, especially that sort of thirty-minute period where they just crumbled, like awfully crumbled, which is not really what you expect in the past of a of a Bozovic team. What you would really think of that is like very solid defensively, keeping the a good back double bank of forward keeping the shape really well and they kind of just crumbled but I also agree in the, in the last game against Zenit or the last game bar one his last game they, they they performed really damn well and I think that the the biggest issue in the game was not really anything that was of Bozovic's making but more so the players just making silly mistakes absolutely ludicrous mistakes that is exactly why they're in the position that they're in right now Andrew, what's what's your thoughts on the on the on the second? Do you think it's a little bit harsh, maybe, or is it a, could um, be a little bit of a wake up call and bounce that they need? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I I feel pretty much exactly what how David worded it really because they if you look at the league table just on numbers alone, then you can't really argue they've just been in, in free fall and and like you said, struggled without Sobolev, and who wouldn't struggle without a target man of that quality? Um, but and again, like David very rightly pointed out, they shocked us completely with how they played um, in St. Petersburg. And it, it almost looks like it's a, almost a bit too little, too late. But um, Grushenkov and Radonjic as a, as a well, a partnership, at least two of the attacking three then, Zinkovsky out wide, it's suddenly out of, not out of nowhere, but it, they are starting to look like a unit that could do some real damage. 
And Bozovic is a he's not a dull manager. I mean, he's he's a very organised. He's got a very very good reputation, and I don't think he'll have a trouble getting another job in Russia. Um, so. Is it harsh? I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what could you expect to be able to achieve without Bozovic at this stage that would be better than just trusting him at least to say, look, you know what you've got to do, save us from relegation. Um, and if you get relegated, then, then we'll sack you. But what, what if somebody else, could, they're not going to get anybody in at this stage. So it's not like it's an advantage to sack him now, get a new man in now, because who's available? Who is going to come in right now? Um, I think it's a, a touch harsh. Yeah. I can understand why the conversation was started shall we say but uh possibly a little bit harsh yeah i think we can look at the their next game against loco which obviously they uh, they drew on or it was it was basically exactly the same performance they they played really well again and it was a game where they lost due to individual mistakes so it's uh tell lives just sort of inherited the same issues as bozovic i think uh, the managerial decisions are not necessarily um at fault in either in either case I think the one reason that they could have possibly thought of, of the sack and Bozovic is that everything became a little bit stale at Krilia. Obviously, that's a lot of the reason of that is because they've lost Sobilev. And to lose such an influential player half through the season is, is basically it ends the season already. You're just kind of trying to salvage what you've got left of it at that point and, and stay up and cling on to anything you can. But perhaps the thinking may be a little bit longer term. Now... Bozovic, like you've both mentioned, is known for being like having teams with steely determination, solid defensively. Now and again, play some good football, but it's generally revolved around getting it up the pitch as quick as possible to the big guy at the top. Now that's that's what he done at Arsenal Tula for years, and and was very successful at it to an extent for Arsenal. So perhaps with Talalayev coming in, they may be trying to look to the future a little bit, look to look towards the youth and maybe a longer term goal here rather than just act in the short term all the time. Now if you look at Talalayev, he's for those for the listeners, he's uh, arrived from FC Kimki where he was the manager for the first half of the season until the suspension during the winter break. And he's he's basically led them to what should be promotion in in normal circumstances. But <laughs> as as things stand, it's it's unclear of with which uh, whether or not Kimki will actually accept the promotion into the RPL due to the the lack of finances. And you look at Kimpke's team this season, they've got some, some as with most in, in the FNL, to be fair, some very young and exciting talents like Kamran Aliyev, who's scored, who scored, I believe, 14 goals this season. Oh, no, he scored eight goals, sorry, in 14 starts in the, for Kimpke in the FNL. And then looking back at Karelia, they've got some very exciting players. Obviously, Glushenkov is only on loan. But uh, other other people like uh, Artem Timofeyev and Anton Zinkovsky, who they got a, a, a core of some exciting young team there. Nikita Chelnov, the not long signed from Siska Moscow. So, Andrew, do you think maybe it's a, it could be the, looking at a longer term project rather than in the short term flitting from manager to manager? Yeah, I mean, I can I can see I can see what you're getting at there because you you got to remember Tyler Life's got quite an interesting coaching history and he's got a a very good history with the Russian youth teams. You know, he's brought well, I say he's brought through. He's overseen you know, youth team performances for, for Russia, for the likes of Fyodor Smolov, Alex Shatov, um, I mean, Taras Burlak was even under one of his teams. Um, you know, and it, so he's he's clearly, uh, he clearly has a very good eye for youth. And maybe that is exactly what they're thinking. So there is some logic behind it, at least. Um, I mean, it's putting a lot of pressure on him very, very early 
to to rescue to turn it around but like we've pointed out there definitely is the materials there to do it it's just whether you know it's such a short concentrated time period now it really is going to be quite a tough ask but you know when he's got the likes of Vushinkov on the form he's on um he honestly looks in the last two game weeks I would say he looks like one of the most informed confident players um, and in the most challenging circumstances, if he gets given a bit more confidence and Tyler Live says, right, OK, come on, you're my man. This is what we're going to do. And he boosts him even more. You never know. They could suddenly shoot up again. Um, it's not a clear cut picture at the bottom um, other than Orenberg, but we'll come to that later. So I think that's that's what I'm thinking along the lines of as well, is that it's, if anything, to be honest, for Krillia, it's a little bit of like a, a risk free option in that. There's only actually a nine-day break at the end of the season, and ordinarily would say, "I oh, will give them to the end of the season if they think they're going to stay up or whatever." And they can't really do that because there is no real preseason. They have to prepare for next season now, while also now trying to fight to stay up. And as you mentioned with Kimki, there possibly not accepting promotion. It could only be whoever finished the 16th to go down, and I think that's a pretty safe bet. It's going to be Orenberg, to be quite honest, and. Moving on to the next managerial uh, sort of change that we've had in the week was Arsenal Tuda lost again, and this time it was 3-1 at home to Akmat Grozny on Tuesday evening. Now, as a result, the club's hierarchy took the decision after the match to sack head coach Igor Cherovchenko. And I, uh, I was I, I chuckled a little bit when I seen it, but I, f- I felt sorry for Cherovchenko and the, t- the team, of course. But uh, I chuckled a little bit because during the game, uh, one of our colleagues in a group chat that we have was saying... Uh, how, how long do you think that Cherovchenko would have? And as it turned out, he had minutes after the game before he was gone. And they themselves, two Arsenal, have been in free fall now. They've dropped the table from 6th to 10th already in the, in the restart and have actually lost five games in a row. So, David, do you think that the second of Cherovchenko is more justified than Bozovic? I mean, well, based on their uh, their recent form, uh, yes, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, Crilio have been... Had been not too bad. Well, they had that little resurgence against Zenit where, you know, they showed some fight. We had some good individual performances. Glushenkov looked like a, a man possessed up front, just like a playing like a proper complete forward. Um, but then you think back, you know, they got, since the restart, Arsenal got swept aside by Spartak home and, and then scored a couple of late goals in the last two or three minutes of injury time, just consolations. They went away to Rostov, 2-0 down very quickly, didn't really offer anything. Um, and then I caught most of the game against Akma and they were absolutely awful defensively, just getting absolutely cut open um, in that first half. Um, the goals they conceded were just were just dreadful. And um, yeah, it was. it's no surprise really. Um, it's a shame because they've got a good squad. You know, they, their striker, uh, Yevgeny Litsenko, is the second top goal scorer in the league. Uh, and even that's not enough right now. And he's he's the one who scored in the last three games even. And even that's not enough for them um, to get the wins, to get some points. You know, look at that squad. That's a squad that started the season in the Europa League, um, that qualified for the Europa League last year, basically, with only one or two changes. Uh, it's a very talented squad yeah. and they, they should be getting a lot of bear out of them. So... Um, Clearly, clearly, it, it's time. almost like the opposite of Krillia in that aspect, in that it's not really sort of the grit and determination and team performances that's been nearly getting results and their own individual mistakes and messing up for them. But Arsenal, two of themselves, it's actually been individual quality of a certain player here or there who've 
oh, they've lost five in a row, who've almost got something from the game. And it seems like the only bright spark of Arsenal's recent games is the continued good form of, as you said, Levchenny Lutsenka. And Lutsenka's weird because when I, when I seen that he went to Arsenal, I thought, oh, that could be a good move for him and maybe reignite his career a little bit, just like Zuba did a couple of years ago. And he's kind of stagnated a bit of Dinamo. And he's always, always been a very good target man, probably one of the best target men in the league. And then, but never really scored much. I think this this is actually the either the first or second season that he's ever hit double figures, and now yeah. he's flying. He's, <laughs> he's scored in three in a row now. And Andrew, just wanted your thoughts on on Lutsenka and Arsenal. Do you think? I, I guess you maybe agree that it's a justified one to get rid of Cherovchenko, maybe a bit out of his depth. Yeah, I, I think so. I think probably it. I would say it is more justified than uh, than Bosovic. Um because I mean Arsenal too. Look, are they, they were and should really still be in the Europa League mix. And if you if you're being brutally honest, they um, they're still only four points off what could end up being a Europa League space. I don't think they've got any hope in hell of catching Spartak or Dynamo um, or even Sochi, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> Sochi have various powers in their in their corner, don't they? Um, ask, but you, you say about Lutsenko, though. I mean, it's funny how these relatively, I mean, he's not a technically gifted player, but he's a very, very good finisher. Um, he really, his goal at the weekend, uh, on, on Wednesday, sorry, when he was going, I mean, he was already, they'd already lost. They were 3-0 down. Uh, it was in added time and he was going way, way away from goal. But it really was quite a difficult finish and he had the instinct and he, he, he knew he was going to put it there. He scored something like eight headers or nine headers, I think, this season. Um, so it tells you what type of a target man he is. He's not he's not a complicated player, but he just is. It shows what confidence can do. You know, these these type of target men in the Russian Premier League have actually succeeded with some reasonable degree of success in the last five ten years. I mean, I remember Spartak Gogniev at Ural Yekaterinburg. He's not exactly a technically gifted player either, and yet he he got. Okay, it was about eight, nine, ten goals, I think it was, which for Oral is the equivalent of 30 for any other team. Um, and it's almost a bit of an odd dichotomy we've got here. Arsenal in free fall and Lutsenko in the form of his life. Um, I actually am pleased. It's going to sound awful. I, I don't have anything against Arsenal as a club, but I'm pleased that they are not challenging for the Europa League because they are woefully under-equipped to challenge in Europe, where Spartak and Dynamo are clearly far more capable of making a challenge in the Europa League next season. And I'm getting sick and tired of seeing Russian clubs being, you know, battered from pillar to post in Europe. They really need to start showing uh, better better results um, in continental football. And I don't think Arsenal are remotely ready for that. So I just think survive, yeah. change manager, re- reboot and start again. Yeah, they struggled yeah. last year, definitely. But I think um, just, kind of just catching on to that Lusenko thread, um, I think Russia... Is pretty good at bringing out the best in sort of these actually quite technically technically sound target men. You think of Juba; he is probably like that that idol for being a target man who is very very strong, very big, but is very good technically. We all know that he's very good with his feet. Litsenko scored a couple of amazing goals this season where. He's pulled off some lovely dribbling and scored some cracking finishes with his feet. I remember one against Orenberg really early in the season that he scored. And then think again, Sobolev at Spartak, pretty much in the exact same mould as the two. 
And I'm sure if we carried on thinking, we could list off another few over the last few years who were playing that similar role. I think it's just the style of football brings it out, brings it out in Russia. These sort of technically decent target men, um, which you don't tend to see elsewhere in Europe. I feel like. Yeah, definitely in the if if you would use the term B B leagues, like then they're not the the elite leagues. I mean, Russia isn't quite up there with them yet, and won't be for some time. But if you compare Russia to its peers around itself, I mean, the quality of some of the play and some of the players that Russia can attract is a lot higher than in say a lot of the time Turkish leagues, Danish leagues, and so on. And I think because the, with that quality, if you if you're a player who has that ability, because obviously that ability is is key. And then you can couple that with something else, like if it's Lutsenka and Zubet in human strength, if it was uh, Ahmed Musa a couple of years ago, a sheer pace on the counter, or, or Hulk where it was just absolutely everything. He's just the complete product. I think Russia, because it's such a defensive league, those players, when they do well, really shine. They really do tend to shine in that situation. And Lutsenka is just absolutely thriving on confidence, as I mentioned earlier, with the three goals in a row and then I think he's got six, uh, five goals in his last six games. And, and I, I, I think that's probably why you kind of look at this and you see the results that they've been having, not just that, but the performances. And and, and, and uh, sorry, Cherovchenko being a relatively inexperienced manager at this level, not getting the best out of players that we know have got genuine strong ability, like Lutsenka, like Goran Chaucic, uh, Mech Maxim Belyaev. Belyaev's basically been a shadow of his former self over the last four or five games. He's been truly awful. And when you look at that ability of those players, it, it, it kind of, you, you point, you automatically point fingers at the coaching and managerial style. Now, ironically enough to kind of combine these two little teams together, it seems that Another manager's newly out of a job and has a penchant for a target man like Lutsenka up top is Mia Dragbozovic himself, the former Krylia manager. Now, he was sacked just two days before Cherovchenka and is somewhat of a legend down in Tula. So, Andrew, do you think maybe a return could be on the cards or is it just Arsenal needing to react while they can't just try and salvage what they've got left of the season? Um, yes. Well, it's, it's an interesting proposition. I mean, it's a simple one because... Well, obviously, he's available, he's there, and he's, he'll be popular. Um, and I always think at this point, when you've got such little time to really implement, I mean, how how completely different his philosophy would be uh, to Chernochenko, I don't know. But, I mean, if you were to try and instill your own methods, it takes time to implement them. So what you need in the short term is you need a boost of personality. You need a, a level of popularity. It's not going to last, sustain forever. But in the short term, you've got to remember, we're on the 2nd of July. In 20 days' time, this season is going to end. And you've got nine days till the next one. So 20 days to, to finish everything, not just prepare, but finish the season. You've got to have a, a level of personality and respect that, you know, he is someone, like you mentioned, who carries at least some of that from his from his previous spell. So I think maybe it might be a short, good short-term um, option for them. Um, I mean, at the moment, they brought in, uh, they said, until they have said until the end of the season, they're going to put a youth coach in charge um, and two, two coaches are going to share responsibilities. Um, but... I mean, maybe they will start saying to Bodrich now, look, we'll bring you in for next season. Um, it could be a good option. And David, what do you think on that? Is, is it merely coincidence or 
is he is he the right man or maybe somebody else who who could take over Arsenal and maybe get those players of that quality we mentioned clicking a bit better? Um, I mean, he's been there before. He's done a good job. Um, you know, he's been in Russia for a long time now, like what two thousand and eight, I think, is when he came in, and with a I think he left once for a minor break to go back to Serbia. But any man who can manage Amkar Perm twice in his career can surely do any job, really. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> I was just laughing about that. As well known, we we RFN have had used to have a little bit of a a bone to pick with Amkar in the continually horrendous football. But <laughs> maybe he would be a good fit for Tula again then. But it, this could have so these these decisions and who replaces Bozovic, uh, who replaces sorry, uh, Cherovchenko at Arsenal and how Talalayev gets on at Krulia could have massive ramifications for the rele- relegation battle at the end of the season. Now, Akmat began the restart rock bottom, but have now gleaned seven points from three games, led by a somewhat born-again Denis Klushikov, as much as it pains me to say that as a Spartak fan. Do you think Krilia could survive, David, with Talalayev in charge? And as we mentioned, that sort of that's, that ability and skill that they've got through uh, Zinkovsky, Klushenkov and others? I mean, if we're basing it off the last two games, even though Talalayev was only in charge for one of them, you'd say yes. But then you have to remember what happened in the game before that and you think, oh God, maybe not. Um, but but yeah, they've got the quality there. You know that that trio up front have been playing very well. Gushinkov started in the in the strikers' role against um, against Zenit and scored, and then he started out wide right uh, against Loco and scored. Moved then into the striker position. Uh, he didn't score, sorry. He assisted, and he moved into the strikers' position in the second half, and easily could have had a couple of goals if not for some good goalkeeping. Uh, you know, you tore Vedran Chorluka, one you know one of the most experienced players in the league, to pieces that second half. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of hopeful, and the fact they they play in a World Cup stadium makes me think that even if they do start to struggle, maybe something might happen that we we are we aren't uh, sort of aware of. Uh, <laughs> but um, I still I still think they've probably got the quality uh, to to manage to stay up. Uh, but Akmat are playing sort of worryingly well to the to the to the stage where I'm thinking they might stay up. Tambov has sort of yeah. have scraped a couple of cheeky goals in recent recent weeks, and you can just sort of see them probably g- gaining enough points as much as I wouldn't really want them to stay up um, to do so. Uh, and as we discussed, we think Orenberger are going down, especially with their two forfeits in the last couple of weeks, not helping matters, but. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful for Krillia. I'd like to see them stay up at least. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'd agree yeah, with you on that one. I mean, I mean, Dave, you, you, I think, um, I mean, we can we can look at the teams that have World Cup stadiums in two ways. We can be cynical and say, well, they're not going to be allowed to not to survive. But then I, I don't want to see World Cup stadiums be, become white elephants. I mean, there's, mm. we, whether we like it or not, they've been built. They are wonderful. All of them are absolutely fabulous structures. Do we yep. need them? Do the clubs need them? Of course not. The average attendance is, in most of these clubs is far, far below what the World Cup attendance is. And that's a World Cup problem, not a Russia problem, I'd like to point out. But anyway, Krulia, I think, are, are probably the best set of the current bottom three to be the lucky odd one out, if you like. I, I can see Tamboff and Ongberg going down. Tamboff have not been dreadful. They have had flashes of stubbornness, shall we say, um, 
Mikko Kostukov is is a dangerous runner. And he, he's not necessarily a great goal scorer, but he's a, he can always offer a threat for them. Uh, and of course, they have the greatest centre forward of all time, um, which they are scandalously underusing at the moment. Um, perhaps this is all part of the game plan. You know, just uh, bring Mamtov in for the last five games and he'll score six goals and keep them up. Who knows? But no, I mean, in all, in all seriousness, I, I do see Krilia surviving and I see Tambov being the ones to replace them in the bottom two. You're moving it to stand up, Andrew. <laughs> say, say again, David. You're moving it to stand up. Is that your next career move? <laughs> well, you know, I've got plenty of material when I look at the likes of Kimki, Ali coming, Ali going, Orenberg laughing at them at the bottom. They they make the jokes for me. It's it's, it's an easy career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't go down that route with the if you're going to put that much faith in Mamtov, to be honest. But I will agree that I do think. Uh, Tambov are in a little bit of trouble, especially if you look at their away form. Now, weirdly enough, I I was looking at the form today and like looking at Tambov after after watching the game, and, and I was I was just thinking that they're actually doing surprisingly well at at home in quotation marks, considering they're now being playing out of uh, out of Nizhny Novgorod. In a but in the away table, Tambov are actually currently rock bottom. They've only got nine points all season away from home and only won twice on the road and four four of their, their last games are, are away from home. So that could be a little bit of a, a salvation there for Krulia, maybe if they can if Krulia can get it together and cut those silly mistakes out like like the, the Anton Terekov's silly foul, stupid tackle that conceded a penalty just with his first touch pretty much after coming on against Zenit. I will mention Arsenal, but I, I think we know the answer. No risk in relegation for Arsenal Tula. Five points clear now of of Krilia. Are they just going to see the season out and just stay up and move on to next year, do you think, uh, David? I mean, with Lutsenko in good form, uh, Lesservoy has been playing pretty decent as well of late. Um, and hopefully with a, a bit of refreshing behind the scenes, maybe well, I'm hoping they'll sort of uh, get it together. I quite like Arsenal Tula. You know, they've always got, when the stadiums are allowed to be full, they've always got good home support. And... Uh, and yeah, you'd, you'd fancy them to probably get it together um, with a strike on the such form as, as Butenko. Yeah. Speaking of getting it together and people on form, or rather in this case, not on form, the next topic's one which has quite frankly plagued Russian football for some while, and it's came into sharp focus over the last month, poor refereeing. Since the restart, there's been a plethora of dubious and controversial decisions made by the man in the middle of the pitch, and these have been largely exacerbated further by problems caused by the introduction of VAR. David, could you give us a quick rundown of maybe some of the biggest controversies, including why Rostov and Krasnodar actually were forced to play 119 minutes on Wednesday evening? Of course, I'd be glad to. Um, well, let's just go from the last sort of uh, two match days, I suppose. So uh, Zenit versus Krilia over the weekend. Um, Korea had a very nice, which I think I alluded to earlier, um, scored a very nice equaliser in the second half, which would have brought it back to 2-2. Um, but in the build-up, Maxim Glushenkov was alleged to have handled the ball um, when bringing it down to lay it off for Radonjic, who finished it. Uh, very, very harsh decision. Um, if it did hit his arm, it was more of his shoulder, almost, it seemed. Uh, and his arm was in a natural position because he was jumping at the time. So, uh, yeah, very, very difficult on that, considering, you know, 
it's Zenit. Everyone says, "Oh, it's Gazprom money they buy in the refs." That's what that's what all the Spartak fans are spouting on social media, anyway. Um, then we had uh, Ruben versus Lokomotiv. We had a penalty for Loco, which was given for handball. It was a it was a ball fired at um, Carl Starfelt uh, from about five yards away. Uh, it hit his chest and then hit his arm, um, and the ref decided that five yards away and a full fully struck ball bouncing from his chest to his arm is enough to give a penalty. Uh, you know, he had no chance of moving his arm the way, plus it hit another part of his body first, which I'm pretty sure in the rules uh, means it should not be given. I would have to double check that. Then about 10 minutes later, uh, Rubin had a similar incident at the other end of the field, but nothing was given. So we're having a bit of a lack of, uh, what's the word I want to use? Consistency. Consistency. Thank you, James. Uh, then what do we have? Oh, Tambov Zeni. We had a very, very sketchy penalty given to Tambov this time against Zeni. Um, I couldn't believe it when they gave it. Oh, even after a VARD call, they gave it. It was a very, very... Just couldn't believe it. You had uh, Tambov striker Fedchuk backed into uh, Yaroslav Rakitsky. Went to flick a header on. Basically headbutted Rakitsky in the arm. Goes down because he's had quite a heavy blow from Rakitsky without actually Rakitsky really meaning to do so. Uh, and they've they've given that as a penalty. It was more of a case of Fedchuk hitting Rakitsky rather than the other way around. Uh, thankfully, Zenit got some justice because they did score uh, a winner about five minutes later in deep into injury time. And then let's come to the, the main attraction, as you said, uh, Rostov versus Krasnodar this weekend, or not this weekend, yesterday even, midweek. Um, we had... I think six minutes of injury time were given for uh, various injury injury breaks throughout the game. Uh, and in the 92nd minute, a free kick goes into the Krasnodar box. Um, Rostov player at the back post heads it. It hits a Krasnodar player, goes out for a corner. What then unravels over the next eight minutes and 49 seconds is several, I think I saw at least eight or nine different angles um, of the header, which appeared to hit Brazilian defender Caio on the head slash arm, depending on the angle you could see. Uh, now, Caio was jumping and his arms were therefore in, in the air to give him leverage, uh, or to give him not even leverage, just to give him some air. The, the ball came at him from two or three yards away at, both, at best, and it was behind him. Um, and yeah, I, I personally, I know James and you and Andrew have different thoughts on this, but I personally wasn't given conclusive evidence that it definitely hit his arm from the replays I've seen. Um, so yeah, that that devolved into eight minutes. I've never heard of a stop that long for VAR. Eight minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, so by the time the penalty was taken, that's hundred. that was taken in the 102nd minute, I believe, or the 100th minute. Uh, and we ended up playing until the 109th minute to make up for all these stoppages that we'd had through injury time. So... Um, so yeah, nothing much really. The referee's been pretty good, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're the stand-up, you're the stand-up man now, David. <laughs> pretty good. Oh dear lord. Um, I mean, also, I just, I, I just can't listen and remind myself of that that farce in injury time. 19 minutes. I remember watching, I think it must have been Euro 96, and there was one game where injury time went to five minutes. And I remember thinking then, this is ludicrous. What does the game come to? Five minutes of added time. 
Um, but in all seriousness, the the, the Kayo handball um, decision, I think, actually raises quite an important point about what exactly handball should be. Now, if you like David said, when you're jumping, you can't jump like a pencil, like a penguin. Your arms cannot physically stay by the side and get enough leverage to challenge for a header, which is obviously what you're going to do in the added time you're a defender. Um, now, the rules actually state that automatically, whether it's intentional or not, regardless of the distance, if the arm is above shoulder height, it's automatically a handball. They don't even allow that to be natural. And I'm actually not even sure that's fair in, in a sense, because if you think, if you try and jump up, but you you rigidly keep your arm below shoulder height, you're still not actually getting much leverage, if you think about it, are you? And this was from, what, a yard away? Two yards away? I think it does hit his arm, um, but it is it is minimal contact. But it does hit his arm, in my opinion. And you could argue, from one angle, it looks like his arm is above shoulder height. This, for me, is the problem. They have created a law that I think it could be argued they followed rigidly to the letter to award the penalty. But is that law in the first place entirely necessary? You know, I mean, we anybody looking at it can see that Kyle, his, his eyes are looking in the opposite direction. He's tried to get the head. He couldn't quite reach it. He's headed back in towards him. He, he, he literally cannot possibly have eyes in the back of his head. So he's not gaining an advantage from it. I, I just think it's... I, I just think it's the rules are the problem for me. How it was implemented in the Rostov Krasnodar game, dragging on that long, that was a joke. That was poor, I mean, but the rules didn't help. The worst part about it, I think, was he gave the penalty after about five minutes of waiting and then going over to the side to watch the to watch the screen and check it. And then we waited for another two to three minutes for what well, I went on the stream that I was watching on YouTube, no apparent reason. Uh, I think it became clear later that they were checking for any possible offside. So it took them another two and a half minutes after that of just sat there waiting. So Evelyn Popov sat there with the ball in his hands for eight minutes to take a penalty, which he then duly did tuck away and, and equalise for Rostov in the in the dying minutes. But um, it was yeah the whole the whole way they implemented that decision was was farcical. If they knew it was a handball straight away, give it. It doesn't take eight minutes to to make that happen. Yeah, I think that's the main issue with this here is that we're not our aim in bringing this topic up is not to chastise the referees individually and just say, look at this decision, look at this decision, look at this decision, because human error exists and human error will always be a crucial part of football. The bigger underlying issue is the rules themselves. The refereeing across the world is in delay, is in disarray. Sorry, to an extent, there's far too much grey area in the in the rule book. There's not enough leeway given in these situations especially with the introduction of VAR and this this new technology that what if VAR is used for every single little tussle in the box because you get two big massive centre halves have a coming together the one pulls one of the shirt one pulls the other shirt tiny little touch in the rules that is a foul no matter what but if that's going to be implemented in every single game then you're going to have 15 penalties a match I, th I think the main key, the key thing here is just having as you mentioned before, a little bit more consistency and a clearer message from the top. And I think the clearer message from the top morphs into the next part of this in that the RFU actually appointed a new refereeing chief, chief in January with a longer-term aim of sorting out the peru officiating. And that's the former World Cup Finals referee, Victor Kashai, and he's, he took up the role. 
Of course, it's it's far too early to have him to have any real effect on the actual moment-to-moment decisions on the pitch. But it is clear that he has a huge job on his hands. Do you th- can you think of any ways, maybe in the in the immediate short term, that they could? If, uh, like I say, this isn't just a Russia. This is FIFA, a, a, a Russia problem. Sorry, this is a FIFA problem that players, uh, referees could be helped, and this could aim towards getting more consistency. Because for me, I've thought of a, a, a clear step forward, but it'd be to try and coax more retired players into donning their boots as officials, because it's clear as day that. 99% of referees have never put a pair of football boots on in their life apart from to be a ref. And some of the decisions they make is just, well, like, like, you, like you mentioned, yes, his arm is up in the air, but because of the way he's had to jump to get some leverage, to get some air, mm. that's actually a natural position. I've never seen anybody jump up in the air in a header with the two arms down below the sides like they're, they're a salmon in a river. It's unbelievable. Well, so, Andrew, do you think that Kasai could maybe make a, a long-term difference with the experience and the elite level he's worked at, or is it a, a wider problem? I, I think um, I think this is an issue that is being made into a bigger issue than it needs to be, um, because the amount of fiddling around with the rules is just driving everybody nuts. You've got it takes time to appreciate what a rule is intended to do. Um, so that players understand it and accept it. Now, VAR, for example, that is something initially I supported before it came in, because I thought, well, I see the intention that they're trying to go with. And if you're going to bring in something as as sweeping as that, it does need time to get ready, um, but it should have been better prepared anyway, in my view. Simple little things could be done. Here's what I would do, um, James. Here's what I would do to make it simpler. Start by just simply making a very rigid time limit on decisions. Start with that because you've got people on one side who are furious when decisions are not spotted when they can see it on TV and you, they want to use technology to improve decisions. You've got people on that side. You've got people on the other side who say, you know, get rid of that. We just want the referees. We like human error. We like the debate. Well, how about this for a compromise? You get a bit of both. You get a bit of both. You use the technology that has existed for decades TV replays, if you can't see with the naked human eye on TV within a very limited time period, then it is too controversial to make the call anyway, and the on-field decision stands. It's really that simple. I don't understand why it's been built up into this highly technical, how do we implement this rule and that? Just simply go with what we have had with a little extra help from technology, not technology taking over altogether. And then you get the best of both worlds. I, I agree completely. I mean, I've from the start, I've been quite vocal that I don't want VAR at all. I don't like the idea of it. I don't believe that clubs at the elite level should be given a completely different rule set now than those who are lower down in the leagues, in any country that is. But it's clear as day that VAR is here to stay. The television rules football all across the world. And who who benefits most from VAR? Television companies. Every single time there's a VAR decision all over the world... That country's biggest broadcaster, be it in the UK, is Sky Sports. Everyone will go back to them who hold the rights on that initial incident and then hold the rights in every single time it's been shared on social media or get the social media boost from every single time it's then shared again and again. So it's it's clear that VAR will stay, and I think they do need to make a little bit more of a compromise in between the two, have the technology, but it's they don't need this, like, measuring sticks that they're doing where oh is this guy an inch offside is he an inch onside what happened to level 
the player was back in the day if the player eyes level oh argument over so it's 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 coming to a point where var isn't actually aiding anybody it's exacerbating the issues and one of the main issues is the current technology levels that are in the game as it's well known in the top five leagues var has been implemented but also a gds a goal decision system which has also been a, a technology that's existed for a very long time in other sports and the goal decision system is widely regarded as the the smallest margin margin of error when it comes to these refereeing technologies obviously Sheffield United game in the Premier League a few weeks back away. That's a, a very rare circumstance that it gets it wrong like that. But the margin of error on, on GDS is is pretty much minimal. Now, the, arguably the biggest, maybe or the, certainly the most talked about on, in the zeitgeist of Russian football online was the Spartak Ufa match, where Spartak had two late goals, some uh, one late goal from Alexander Sobolev uh, disallowed, uh, overruled by VAR. And another one, which is the I'll move on to now, was the the big talking point for a long time, is that Sobolev himself had a got on the end of a ball into the box, nice little turn and shot, and Belenov made a good save, and it was he caught it on the line, where it was so close. It was one of those decisions decisions where if you've got the GDS, it's in the middle of the goal quite easily. Referee checks his watch, goal, no goal, whatever. But in the RPL, we don't have any form of GDS. And they've brought in VER, which is a much larger margin of error. So I think the way that they've introduced this technology is just mental. If they're going to bring VAR in, which was inevitable that they would, they had to have a goal decision system in place. And now I'll move it on. I'll move it on to yourself, David, first. But I personally think it wasn't over the line. Uh, how about you? Do you think it was over the line, or no. do, do you think that we need this GDS in? Um, I mean, I was surprised uh, that it wasn't in. Uh, in the sort of uh, aftermath when we were trying to work out, is it in? Why, why haven't they used it? Why haven't we seen a replay, you know, to, to show us whether it was over the line or not? Uh, especially since we found out that, um, you know, it was used at the at the World Cup. So it, it must be implemented at least a few of the stadiums in some manner. Um, it, it's a must, really. I think most fans agree that, uh, you know, unlike VAR, the, the gold decision system is it's a pretty straightforward and clear-cut way of deciding. Yeah, that's like, oh, as you as you already explained, um, Spartak fans are obviously not happy because you know they needed a win and they wanted that ball to be over the line as much as they could. But I, I don't think it was over the line. I think Belenov just about kept it there. Um, granted, most of the ball was over the line, uh, but I don't think the ball was fully over. Yeah, I, I agree. Even as a Spartak fan, I look at that and I just think there is there is not the whole of the ball isn't over the entire the whole of the line and it's as simple as that it's not a goal but it it just comes back to that point where they need to implement these things better implement these rules better it it seems like they're just making a mountain out of a molehill because they've done it badly and thankfully because I'm host I'll be allowed the final word on this and the uh, even though you both disagree with me that Spartak other goal where Gijo was uh, considered offside was definitely 100% a goal and there was absolutely nothing wrong with that and swiftly moving on <laughs> hold on a minute <laughs> you can't just change the rules of football James <laughs> <laughs> no I'll tell you what I'll tell you what me, I will I will allow James to change the rules of football because of the topic coming up because I'm going to really really enjoy this one <laughs> 
Yeah, poor old Orenberg. And that, that is the next topic is, once again, poor old Orenberg. For the last few weeks, we here have all predicted that they pretty much struggled to survive, losing the best players during the break and failing to see real genuine quality that a lot of other one other teams have throughout the squad. They've lost pretty much every game they've played so far. The problems have now been exacerbated even further. Now, as discussed last week, the coronavirus hit. Currently, it's 10 players and staff at the club have now tested positive, and thus they were forced to forfeit their match against Krasnodar and then against Ural. Now, it's highly likely that the Ruben match at the weekend will be postponed or, once again, a 3-0 forfeit. Due to the nature of the restart, the current calendar is already jam-packed and the teams have only got nine days before moving on to the next season. So 14 of the 16 teams are only actually allotted one date, so which is the 19th of July. 14 because Spartak and Zenit play each other in the semi-final of the Cup on that, that day. So Spartak and Zenit, if they have a game postponed, theoretically, as things stand, can't actually rearrange anything, so they would just have to forfeit. Now, Orenberg do have a little room for manoeuvre because they forfeited those two, so they have one in reserve. But they've got 10 players currently, and it, it, it rose this week again, the amount of people who are testing positive. So they're either going to run out of games or have to forfeit them and lose 3-0 anyway, which, considering how they're playing... And last week against Logo, they forgot that they were playing football and not fighting MMA. 3 0 is probably a better result than they could get in some of their games, to be quite honest. So, Andrew, yeah. do you think that Orenberg will actually be able to finish the season on the pitch? Or uh, Surely there'll be more postponements to come yet. Yeah, oh, 100%. Um, and uh, yeah, will they be able to finish the season? Yes. Um, it will be bottom of the table, and I'm going to laugh every minute of it. Um, but no, in all seriousness, though, the the regulations that have been brought in specifically for the restart, which I, I believe are only temporary until next season begins, include one amendment, which I think is quite telling. Before, the rules stated that if you don't fulfil a fixture, and you know, in other words, you don't agree a postponement, you just simply forfeit it, you will get kicked out of the league. Now, when we've seen games postponed before, it's not been a problem. We saw, for example, Orenberg against Sochi was postponed from December and they replayed their game in March. You know, OK, you don't want to see it happen too much, but in extreme circumstances, and this is obviously an extreme circumstance, that's fine. But they've changed the regulations so that if you... Oh, sorry, I must correct myself. It was you, if it happens more than once, you get you will be kicked out of the league. That is now not the case. In other words, consecutive forfeited matches are going to be allowed in the short term. Clearly, because anybody with half a brain cell will see, that is obviously going to have to happen. You've already mentioned the obvious point. There is only one possible date for any postponement. Well, once you have two, you've run out of dates already. Um, so the rules have been changed to allow cases like Orenberg, basically, because the, the league is so desperate to finish this season that they can't be so embarrassed uh, by having to kick teams out of their own league. They're changing those rules to allow them to postpone, uh, to cancel, sorry. So I think what we'll see is Orenberg, yeah, like say this weekend, it's very uncertain whether they'll complete this fixture. I don't think they will, is my honest opinion. And I don't think they're going to be the last team to be in this position. Um, and it's, I just, I really want football to continue because I love watching it. I've missed it for months, but deep down I know it's just, it's not the right thing that should be happening right now. 
Um, but what I want to happen yeah. and what will happen are two different things. And I think what will happen is, yes, Ironberg will finish. There will be more postponements. There will be more forfeited matches um, and will limp with, you know, a broken leg and a fractured arm over the finish line. But that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree there. We all wanted the football to come back. And when it was first announced it was coming back, I was, like, part of me, I was delighted. I was like, oh, yes, finally, the RPL's back. It feels like there hasn't been a game in like, a year. But on the site this week, could you have a look at the most recent, some of the most recent articles? I actually published an editorial piece where I basically discussed quite in length that the 2019-20 season, in my opinion, shouldn't have resumed. It wasn't safe enough to do it. And and now, because the ongoing coronavirus, it just proved that the, the country and footballing authorities were not ready for football to come back. And now, now pe- lockdown ending and people being able to go shopping more, go out the house more and socially distance is completely different to this, to the atmosphere that footballers have to live in, to the, to the nature of the, the, the high physical contact game of, of football. And it's a shame because I, I, I agreed, uh, Andrew, I was delighted when I came back, but it's just clear as day that they weren't prepared. And Orenberg, unfortunately, are the team who are suffering because of that. Now, I will, I've will i been highly critical of both the RFU and RPL over this, but I will give them credit that the the, the, the changing of the rules regarding postponement and, and kicking out of the league was, was a, and not just a good move, but it's an absolute necessary. Absolutely necessary. Like, take the forfeit. If you have to, and if they get the, if, to get the season finished, if that's what they have to do, then it, it must be done. Now, even if Orenberg do play the games, doesn't necessarily mean that they'll fare any better. David, do, what 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 do you think that's affected the side since the since the lockdown, and and why Orenberg are, are so bad after starting so well? I mean, with the games that they've uh, forfeited, were obviously. Um... Ural recently, where they they forfeited the first one against the Ural, um, which was yeah a tough one. Uh, on paper, it could have gone either way uh, that game. Um, you know they were at home, of course, as well, so they could have maybe managed to get a point. They could have got three points out of that game. That's that's a tough one for them to swallow. It's a bit of pill. Um, and obviously, they they had previously um, postponed their game against Krasnodar. Uh, oh no, no, they didn't even postpone it. They uh, they forfeited. Uh, for uh, a three three nil loss, didn't they? I believe in the end, as Krasnodar had already postponed their game with Dinamo and therefore didn't have a slot to postpone to. So Orenberg have had the very unfortunate circumstances of two teams they've come up against being unable to postpone for various reasons: Ural because they're in the semi final, Krasnodar because they'd already postponed. You know that that's just awful bad luck. Um, you know any other two teams in the whole league. And they would have been fine to play those games or to postpone at least one of those games. Um, and I think they'll be able to postpone the one this weekend. Uh, Ruben, I think I've heard, are willing to postpone it. They've they've got the space and the schedule in the uh, 19th of July to postpone the game too. So um, I think we could see it postponed. I did notice that uh, Orenberg registered 13 new players last week, most of them born in 2003, so they're about 17. Um, so it could be that they go into a game with a largely first team squad, you know, the players who aren't quarantined and just fill out the rest with, you know, youngsters. It it could be that that's a move that they're planning for. Um, so I I don't think we'll see them postpone any more. Um, but it all depends on the, uh, the local authorities. It was them who told them that they couldn't play against it this week. 
So um, who knows? Maybe maybe a for away game they'll be allowed to they'll be allowed to travel because it'll be seen as less of a local risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but as for... no, on on the pitch you mentioned there that there's they're basically bringing in the 17 year olds are doing the Rostov and drafted in the kids. Now that's, it's a must for them. I mean, you might as well try and go for it and rather than just give up and take the three nil, but it's, it's on the pitch as well, where they've suffered with the Deorde Despotovic mm-hmm. leaving. I don't know if you could, you could go into that in further detail, David, because it was a bit of a, bit of an odd one. Actually it caught me by surprise at the time, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, because he was the captain and top scorer and easily the best player. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, he he took the decision to uh, to leave at the end of his contract rather than to see out the rest of the season. Uh, he obviously felt he could get something better quicker, um, and probably didn't fancy a relegation slog for the rest of the year. Um, obviously, nothing has quite come about for him yet. He's still a free agent, as far as I'm aware. He has been linked to some bigger moves, um, but yeah, big blow for them because. If something good was going to come off the Orenberg pitch, it was largely going to be from Despotovic, who scored some very nice goals over the last 12 months. I can think of a lovely goal against Cisco and a lovely overhead down in Grozny. Um, so, yeah, big loss for them. You know, they, they, they brought in some players to try and replace him, but, you know, they, they've played about four games and only two, one of those was without yeah. Despotovic post-COVID. So um, they've not really had a chance to, to get things going yet on the pitch. Um you know, a very stop-start season for them since 2020 has come in. Um, whether whether they would have been able to get wins against Krasnodar and Ural is hard to say. Probably not at Krasnodar. Ural 50-50. Um, and I feel bad for them, you know, um, as a club there. I don't mind them as, as much as... Andrew I'm sorry, does, what? But, um... you, you feel sorry for them? <laughs> You feel, I do feel bad sorry for them. them. <laughs> I think I think it's because I I happen to know someone who's a, a youth coach um, in the city, and you know he says that football really took a big positive growth after the World Cup in the city. They were getting so many more kids playing, and to uh, you know have their have their city's team drop out of the Premier League would sort of be a big blow to them. So I sort of I sort of do feel bad for them. That's it in that case because you know it's a little it's out of their hands really. If the league didn't come back, we wouldn't be in this decision. We wouldn't be talking about this right now. They're in this bad situation through no, no fault of their own, really. Just their their fault for being yeah. born in Orenburg. I'm sorry, but that's my opinion. Anyway, <laughs> no, I don't really mean that. I mean, the, the, it's, it's for sure that the Despotovic is just a massive miss. Mamadou Silla, we've got an interview with the site on actually it was a really good, really good interview from uh, Hanu, and that's and he, he was like he moved in the in the in the during the break and. He was really excited to get going, but since they've got going, the team's just been terrible. <laughs> and Vitaly Sharkov just his shadow of Despotovic's quality, and and the current top goal scorer is Joe Famaye with five goals, and then after him is Ricardo Alves with three. And Famaye doesn't even get a game; he, he comes off the bench most of the time. And in the last five games, they've shipped twelve goals. So that that sort of back bedrock that they developed last year, where they were up up as high as in the top four at one point early on in the season last season. The, the bedrock of that was this just absolutely solid defence that just gave nothing away. And the, unfortunately, they're crumbling. And now the players, more players are getting coronavirus. So they're just going to suffer even more. And like this is why we, two weeks ago, predicted them to go down quite confidently, to be quite honest. And unfortunately, that's probably it for Orenberg in the season now. 
And likewise, that's been it for us this week. Uh, thanks again, Andrew and David, for joining me. Been a pleasure, a pleasure as always. And so next week, we've got another double header of weekend and midweek games. The big ones will be Krasnodar versus Zenit on Sunday, and then Spartak versus Loco, and another Moscow derby next Wednesday. And down at the bottom of the table in the relegation battle, Tambov hosts Akhmat, and the two teams who've sacked their managers, Arsenal and Krilia, face off on Tuesday evening. Check the site out at RussianFootballNews.com for all coverage of the games and wider goings on in the footballing pyramid, including that, as mentioned, editorial and why the league probably should never have resumed in the first place. I've been James Nichols, at James Nichols on Twitter. And David, what's your Twitter handle again? Uh, my Twitter is at RFN underscore David. How about yours, Andrew? Uh, and mine is at Andrew M-I-J Flint. This has been the RFN Podcast. Goodbye for now. Идет футбольный матч, летит на поле мяч. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар. Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле самых ловких и смелых плечов. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.